I invite you, if you'd like, to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12 this morning. Revelation 12, we're doing a little bit of a series on Christmas in heaven. And we're up to believers, believers conquering Satan on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. So Revelation 12, verses 7 through 12. Before we read those and look at them, I invite you to pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great perspective on the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ and the tide it turned in the war. And today, as we look at the devil, how he works, what his goals are, and what happened to him, and how we can overcome him, we pray that you teach us. So change us, mold us, and shape us more into the image of your Son, and save any who don't know you. That's our prayer, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Revelation 12 at verse 7, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here this morning, we're walking through Revelation 12. We're noticing the war going on. And we noticed at the beginning of Revelation 12 last week that the war really amped up. The war has been going on since Genesis 3 or even before then when Satan fell. But the war amped up at Christmas when the child of the woman, Old Testament Israel, was born into the world. And instead of being eaten by the great red dragon, whose Satan was caught up to the throne of God and is in heaven reigning, which is a quick summary of the entire earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. At Christmas, this war amped up and it has caused numerous things to happen to Satan and to turn the tide of the war. And in the passage we're looking at this morning, we're actually going to learn a lot about the devil. There's a lot said about the devil and what happens to him. And we're going to notice a few things. Before we do, I want to highlight something. It's important that we understand the devil's real. We live in a physically verifiable world. We live in a world where people believe that if you can't see it, it doesn't exist. That the only thing which we know to be true is whatever you can see, taste, touch, whatever, use your five senses to discern. And yet the Bible teaches us that behind the scenes in a world that is unseen, that you and I, even as believers, can't see with our eyes, there's a real war going on. And that war means something, and it affects life on this earth. So the devil is very much real. He is very much at work all over the world. He's very much at work in your life trying to do things to you and to me and to believers all over the world. So as we come to the passage, I want us to notice three things. Who is the devil? What is the devil? What does he do? 
what happened to the devil, and then thirdly, how can we overcome the devil? So first, who is the devil? The devil is, first of all, an adversary. If you look, he's actually called the devil. The devil, the word uh, uh, devil, sorry, he's an adversary. The word Satan, we're going to begin there, means an adversary. It's actually of Hebrew origin. The name Satan means adversary, enemy, or opponent. The devil's entire existence since he fell out of heaven is that of a rival of God, an opponent of God. He's not on the same team as God or, or his people. He opposes God. He opposes human flourishing. Satan opposes everything good and right and holy and beautiful and godly. He opposes the spread of the gospel. He opposes the prayers of believers. He opposes everything God is trying to do to make his name great. Satan wants his name to be greater than God's name. This opposition is not like the kind of gentlemanly opposition you see maybe on a Sunday afternoon on a football field somewhere across the United States where competitors will lace up and pad up and helmet up and go at each other's throats for a little bit, but they're not trying to kill each other. It's not a fight to the death. It's a game of entertainment and they're paid to entertain. It's not that kind of gentlemanly warfare. This is an all-out warfare. The devil is opposed to God and the devil is trying to destroy God and to destroy his people. And that is God's aim as well, to destroy the devil. This is the most adversarial kind of relationship. Think U.S. Marines versus ISIS just a few years back. That kind of, that kind of relationship, right? I kill you before you kill me. We go at it. It's a war to the death. So the devil is indeed an adversary. Satan is. It's right in his very name. Satan means adversary. Second thing we learn about the devil is that he's persistent. Verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent. Notice how he's described here. Not as the great red dragon, which he is described throughout the passage, but here as the ancient serpent. Now, why is the Holy Spirit writing ancient serpent here? Well, to tell us that this is the same devil who's been around for a really long time. He was around at least 4,000 years before the coming of Christ, beginning in the Garden of Eden. He's been around at least well, 2,000 years since the first coming of Christ. So the devil's been at war with God for over 6,000 years. This is a long, long time. The Civil War lasted four years. World War I lasted four years. World War II lasted six years. And for those of you who are great historians, I know very little about the Hundred Years' War, but it was 116 years long, beginning in the year 1337. That's a long war. But how about somebody who's so persistent? How about an individual, Satan, who's so persistent that for over 6,000 years, he's continued to battle God? That's exactly who Satan is, that ancient serpent. The devil has had a long career and he has no intentions of getting up. He was a created being who fell from heaven probably sometime during Genesis 2, roughly in there. And by Genesis 3, he enters into Adam and Eve's lives to disrupt and destroy them. He's working in every chapter of the Bible, and he's actually not finally done away with and thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur until Revelation 20. So from the third chapter of the Bible to the third to the last chapter of the Bible, the devil is constantly at work. He is a persistent Foe. Anyone who just picked up the Bible, who didn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and read it from cover to cover, could see that this Satan, this fallen angel, whoever he is, he's persistent. 
He's incessant. He's a tireless foe. Well, third, the devil is also an accuser. The devil is literally false accuser, slanderer, or backbiter. So we're given two names for him, the devil and Satan. Satan is adversary, but the word devil means slanderer, backbiter, or accuser. His very name tells us what he is. He's a false accuser. He's a slanderer, bashing both people and God, pitting believers against their heavenly father, pitting God against his own people. And we see this in a couple of passages in the Old Testament, which are probably fairly familiar to us. Job 1 is maybe the most familiar. Does Job fear God for no reason? This is Satan in the throne room of God, uh, accusing God and also accusing Job. Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him, Satan's words to God, and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Satan accused Job of being a fair weather believer. He accused God of not really testing Job, of being the kind of God who has a relationship with people only because he gives them good things. But boy, you take away his good things and later on you take away his physical health, Job will curse you. Satan was proved wrong, but that's indeed an accusation he brought against Job. And then Zechariah 3, another accusation He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? So speaking of Joshua, the high priest says, indeed, a believer. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestment. So Joshua stood before the Lord covered in filthy garments as a representative of God's people. His filth was a picture of the sin of believers and Satan's there accusing you and doesn't accusing him. And it doesn't take much imagination to figure out what he was accusing him of. This guy's dirty. This guy's sinful. There's no way he can be a believer covered in all this filth. And yet in that context, God actually provides him a different garment, takes off the filthy one. And we know that has to do with the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the picture of every believer before God is a picture of filthiness, of sin, and of dirtiness. And Satan knows this. And so he comes accusing. He comes saying, these people are sinful. They can't stand up before you. You're a holy God, right? That's his accusation. Let me just throw out some examples before we move on to the devil as a liar. You call yourself a Christian? No way you're a Christian if you look at those things. You call yourself a believer? You don't pray nearly enough to be a Christian. No believer continues to sin the way that you do. No Christian is as proud and judgmental as you are. No Christian is nearly as self-righteous as you are. No Christian treats their spouse or children like that. No Christian says the kind of things you say. Aren't you supposed to be holy as God is holy? You're not even close, right? Just a little bit of a snippet of the way Satan comes into our lives and our minds and begins the accusing process. He's also a liar, we're taught in this passage. Verse 9, he's the deceiver of the whole world. And the language deceiver is to lead astray, to deceive, to cause, to wander, to mislead. So the devil lies and deceives. 
C.S. Lewis in his screw tape letters says, readers are advised to remember that the devil is a liar. I don't know how much more straightforwardly you can put it than that. Jesus said of the devil in John 8, 44, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. And we see this right from the beginning of time, right at the beginning of time in the Garden of Eden, when Satan approached Eve in Genesis 3, 1 and said, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Trying to get Eve to doubt God and doubt his goodness. And Eve responded, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now here comes the whopper lie from Satan. Here comes what Satan is a professional at. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. <laughs> Catch the lie. God says, you eat of it, dying you will die. Guaranteed you will die. Satan says, you won't surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now there's some truth in that. You'll know good and evil. But you're not going to be like God. And indeed you will die. Satan's lies almost always come with some aspects of the truth to get us to buy in, right? Like this bait, this worm on the hook. Is there a worm there? Yes. But there's a hook underneath it. And that's how Satan often gives us his lies. So they swallowed Satan's lies and they began to despise God's authority. They no longer appreciated the distinction between them and God. They became discontent with being the most valuable creatures in all the creation. And they fell into sin. And down to this very day, beloved, it is still the default mode of all of us as believers to view obedience to God as a miserable slavery. Still our default mode. Satan convinced Eve that God was holding her down, taught her that lie. She bought it. And to this very day, as believers even, those who have been born again, it's so easy to fall into this trap of, yeah, God's uh, commandments, God's goodness to me, God is my father. He actually wants my worst. That's a lie straight from the pit of hell, literally, straight out of Satan's mouth. And so what ends up happening then regarding our service to the Lord is we do it either as a means of gaining God's favor or contributing to our salvation, which is a misuse of all of our service to the Lord. And that's a slavery in and of itself. Or we serve the Lord only because God has commanded us to because he wants us to be miserable. Again, a lie straight out of the pit of hell. Satan is a liar. And here's maybe some real life examples, not from the Bible, but just in how this often works. Satan will come to us and he'll feed us this lie. Sin's no big deal. Disobeying God is better for you. Follow the passions of your flesh. The world's doing it. Everyone's doing it. You're missing out if you don't. In fact, if everyone else is doing it, it can't be that bad. Don't you see all the smiling faces of those who are living in sin? You could be smiling too if only you pursue what feels good to you. God wants you to be miserable, not happy. True happiness comes from rebelling against God and not obeying him. And oftentimes we buy into that lie, right? We bite into it. We run into sin. And here's what happens the moment we do. This is Satan and his lying. He turns right around and does this. Wow, God will never forgive you for what you just did. Wow, you're a wretch. You know what? There is no way you can be a Christian. He tempts us to sin. And when we finally do end up sinning, then he comes at us and he feeds us another lie. You've just out God's grace. There's no way you can be a Christian. 
This is how deceitful, this is how deceptive, this is how misleading Satan is in his very life. Well, what happened to him? Secondly, who is he first? We just looked at that. What happened to him? If you look at verse 7 of Revelation chapter 12, we're told war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So Michael's an archangel. He's arguably the most powerful angel in heaven, or at least he's in that top tier of powerful angels. In Daniel 10, 13, we read, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Daniel 10, 21, There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And then Daniel 12, 1, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. So Michael is indeed a great prince, a very powerful angel. And he and his angels are depicted here as fighting. And what sets this in motion is the birth and earthly ministry and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what sets this in motion, what took place in verses 1 through 6. But the dragon and his angels fight back, right? Verse 7, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels, they fought back. Satan's a fighter. He's not thrown in the towel yet. He's not going to throw in the towel until he's in the lake of fire and sulfur. And he's finally finished off. His schemes are not like some innocent or cute practical jokes gone wrong. He's really fighting. He's really trying to destroy Michael, the angels. He knows he can't destroy God. He understands that now. But he's going to go after Michael and his angels. He's going to go after God's people during his short time that he has left. Now, in the Old Covenant, Satan had a place of prominence in God's throne room. Again, Job 1.6, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. In Zechariah 3.1, we just read about Satan is right there before the angel of the Lord accusing Joshua the high priest. Satan had access to God's throne room, as it were. But what Revelation 12.7 points out is that at a point in time, Satan was thrown out of God's throne room and thus lost access to God's throne room as an accuser in that way. Doesn't mean he's not an accuser yet, but he's lost access to God's throne room and his accusing has been curtailed to some degree. Verse eight, he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven, Revelation 12, eight. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. I'm suggesting to you that this happened as a direct result of the victory of Jesus' earthly ministry. And here's why I say that. Jesus speaks of this happening, Luke 10, verses 17 through 18. The 72 returned with joy after Jesus sent them out. And they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning. A better, more accurate translation is, I was watching Satan fall like lightning. Almost as if Jesus, looking ahead, is envisioning what's currently happening in the war in heaven between Michael and Satan. And the tide turns when Jesus is ascended into heaven, but he's in the midst of his earthly ministry before he's caught up to God. And he says, I was watching this happen. Satan fall like lightning. John 12, 31, Jesus says, now will the rumor of this world be cast out. 
And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So in the midst of Jesus talking about his death, he says what? Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. What got Satan cast out? Jesus' death, his earthly ministry, arguably the crucifixion being the centerpiece of it. And this is what could be in the mind of the Apostle Paul when he writes in Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Satan is a defeated, publicly humiliated foe after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And notice the exuberant declaration of the defeat of Satan in Revelation 12.10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. This is the beginning of the end for Satan. Now Satan's being cast out of heaven doesn't mean the war is over. In one sense, the war is over, meaning the war between Satan and God has hit a major turning point, and Satan has been dealt a decisive blow. But this defeat has caused the devil to become desperate and up his game. If you look at verse 12 of Revelation 12, Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So indeed, the decisive blow has been dealt to Satan, but that doesn't mean that all of a sudden he's going to roll over and die easily. What happens to an animal which is backed into a corner fighting for its life? It's backed into a corner. Does it have much hope of getting out? No. But how does it fight backed into a corner? Ferociously. Can't run anymore. Can't hide anymore. It's going to give its every last breath to fight that enemy. Satan is not in hell right now. He will be cast into the lake of fire and sulfur eventually, but he's not there yet. He's on this earth wreaking havoc, whatever he can do to destroy God's redemptive purposes. There's a bit of an analogy that I heard, I think it's an appropriate one, to describe what Satan is up against, what has happened to him, and why he's doing what he's doing. In World War II, on June 6, 1944, D-Day, we know that, 133,000 soldiers landed on Normandy's beaches, and they kept on landing for weeks. Uh, three weeks later, by June 30, 850,000 men, 148,000 vehicles, 570,000 tons of supplies had landed on the beaches. And the Allies were up producing Germany and Japan and Italy at a ratio of like 5 to 1 or 10 to 1, depending on what they were producing. It was just incredible. In other words, if you simply did the math, what would you say about the war? It's over, right? Just do the math. The war's over. But did the fighting stop? No. In fact, that winter, later on, December of 1944, what took place on for a few months? The Battle of the Bulge. Hitler's last hurrah. It's his last rage. Hey, we may not be able to go west, but we can start heading south a little bit and then west. And he almost made it to go. The fighting was fierce, and Hitler almost pulled it off. Satan knows that his time is short. He entered Judas Iscariot to try and destroy God, to try and destroy Jesus. But then the resurrection happened. And actually on the cross, forgiveness of sins happened. Redemption happened. Salvation happened. Satan knows, wow, I just got dealt a death blow. But he's not just going to roll over and die. He is fighting ferociously. And how does he fight? What does he do? Well, he blinds people, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in the case of those who are perishing 
The God of this world, which is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So he blinds people so they can't understand the gospel. He seeks to devour people by isolating them. 1 Peter 5, 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Do you know how a lion hunts? A lion hunts by isolating weaker members of a herd, peeling them off, and then attacking them individually. That's what the devil does. He's just prowling around, seeking someone to devour. Who's isolated? Who's apart from God's people, right? Who's all by themselves? Who can he accuse and discourage so that they don't want to be around the fellowship of other believers? Who can he do that to? As soon as he does that, he can go and destroy them. And he brings people to hell by pretending to preach the real gospel. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Isn't that interesting? Satan doesn't come into this world the epitome of all wickedness and ugliness like a great red scary dragon. <laughs> he comes into the world disguised as an angel of light. Wow, this is, God just showed up. Satan showed up, but it looks like God did. That's powerful, beloved. That's what Satan does. So it is no surprise, because Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. How does Satan exercise his last few days? Oh, we're going to go out and preach a false gospel. We're going to go out and proclaim to the world a false gospel so that people will think they're saved. And actually, they're going to wake up in hell with me. Boy, Satan's a formidable foe, beloved. He really is trying to destroy people. And then finally, how can we overcome him? Verse 10, Revelation 12, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And look at verse 11. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. People who've been redeemed, who've been saved, overcome Satan in this way. Satan, you can take my life. I don't love my life like people in the world do. Meaning, if I die and go be with the Lord, that's far better, Paul in Philippians 1. If I stay here and, and I can be useful to people and serve the Lord here, that's great. But to die and go be with Christ is far better. Believers don't love their lives like, oh, I've got to live until I'm 90. I've got to live till I'm 100. I've got to live as long as possible. The believers have a different perspective on life. <laughs> I live till I'm 80. Great. I die when I'm 40. I'm going to go be with the Lord. This is incredible either way. That's how we overcome Satan, one of the ways. But also by the word of our testimony, which is interesting which is not just a profession of faith, but testimony is just the witness of an entire life so that we can in good conscience say with Paul that we've lived our lives in good conscience. Our testimony sure. Yeah, I do genuinely love the Lord. I tell people that. I live that out. I really love Jesus Christ. That's how we overcome Satan who tries to discourage us. And we're also told that they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. And I want to highlight this word by in front of by the blood of the lamb, because in your ESVs, it's ESV is a great translation, but here it's not the best. The word by should actually better be translated on account of or on the ground of. 
So they have conquered him on the ground of the blood of the lamb. In other words, it's not us doing something that we've got to use the blood to conquer Satan. It's something which has been done on the ground of Jesus' work, the shed blood of the lamb. That is how we conquer Satan. So when a Satan accuses you and me of being a sinner and of having no hope, there is really only one proper reply. You're right, Satan, I'm a sinner. But Jesus died for me. He bled so I could be forgiven. And that's why I don't have to sit here and be discouraged and hopeless on account of your accusations. Remember, beloved, this is helpful to remember that God justifies the ungodly. Satan doesn't like that doctrine. He tries to twist it around. He tries to teach God justifies the good moral people, you know, the ones trying to turn their lives around. That's, those are the ones God declares righteous. And Paul in Romans 4 says, God actually declares righteous the ungodly. That's you and me. There are no godly people to, de- to declare righteous, right? The only people that exist in the world are ungodly. Beloved, if that's the case, then, then what's going to be the case in our lives? What will be obvious in our lives from the moment we're justified till the day we die? That we still sin. We are growing, right? We are being sanctified. We are becoming more and more holy. But we still continue to sin. And so Satan can always lodge the accusation, yeah, you guys are still sinful. And he's right. He's right in that. But on the ground of the blood of the Lamb, we can overcome him. Let me just conclude with a few thoughts. First, to those of us who are believers, don't believe the devil. Don't listen to him. Don't listen to his lies. Resist him, rebuke him with the word of truth, with the gospel. I got a couple uh, quotes from Martin Luther that I thought were really helpful. I hope they're helpful to you. Here's Luther describing his personal encounter with the devil. When I awoke last night, the devil came and wanted to, to debate with me. He rebuked and reproached me, arguing that I was a sinner. To this, I replied, tell me something new, devil. I already know that perfectly well. I have uh, committed many a solid and real sin. Indeed, there must be good, honest sins, not fabricated and invented ones, for God to forgive for his beloved son's sake, who took all my sins upon him so that now the sins I have committed are no longer mine, but belong to Christ. That's his own personal counter. He actually gives advice to believers when we deal with Satan. Here's the advice. When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. It's incredible, isn't it? The devil comes in and gives us half the truth, but not the full truth. You're a sinner. You're condemned by God. And we say, you got the first part right. I'm a sinner. But in Jesus Christ, I'm not condemned. In fact, I'm fully forgiven and declared righteous. For those who aren't believers or for those we know, our friends who aren't believers, it can be helpful to think about the devil isn't your friend. He wants you to be eternally miserable. And in order to drag you down to the pit of hell, he distorts your view of God and he makes sin look really good. I I don't know how to say this (laughs) in a really kind and nice way, so I'll just say it. The devil wants you to destroy you. He just, he hates your guts. He hates every unbeliever's guts. And he's got a firm grip on you. He's not your friend. He's your vile enemy. And I want you to think something about how you view God if you don't know him. 
If God would send his one and only son to die for sinners so those sinners can be saved, then how could you think that God is a tyrant? You can't think that. Or if you think that, you're wrong. If God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that all who believe in Jesus can have eternal life, then how can God be unloving and uncaring? Can't be. But the devil likes to get a lot of people thinking that he is. And if God gave the world the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, then how can God be stingy and want us to be miserable? He doesn't. He isn't. So believe in Jesus Christ and you will discover personally and more fulsomely that the God of heaven and earth is your only true friend who will never let you down. Let's pray.